You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. We all love wildflowers and Western Australia is known for having some of the most spectacular wildflowers in the world. Ben Sims is back and he's going to help us understand how a wildflower differs from other flowers, why Western Australian wildflowers are so unique, and he's also going to give us a few tips on finding wildflowers in his home state, even if you aren't on a wildflower tour with a guide. G'day Ben, welcome back to the show mate. Hey Dan, how are you? Yeah, good mate, how you going? Yeah, yeah, good, very busy, but yeah, otherwise good. Yeah, that's good to hear mate, it's coming up to spring, so we're about to get a whole lot busier. Can you tell me what is a wildflower, especially in the context of Western Australian native plants? WA has a uh, huge amount of of wildflowers, uh, something like 13,000 different plants, and a lot of them are, are very interesting and attractive to look at. And yeah, they, they happily grow in different parts of WA. Right. So it's essentially just a native endemic plant that has a striking flower. Not always. The flowers can vary from insignificant to absolutely breathtaking and everything in between. So it's a native flowering plant. Yeah. So I guess in that context, we could say that a wildflower in one area could be a weed in another area. Oh, absolutely. It doesn't. Yeah, certain plants can be more vigorous out of their endemic range than in it such as I've talked about before, Geraldton Wax grows four or 500 k's north of Perth and it's a weed around Perth. So, yeah, yeah, it can definitely, if it's happier outside of its natural range and it can naturalize, it can it can go weedy. Hmm. So what isn't a wildflower then? So what's not a wildflower is, is just a pretty flower in the wild and quite often a weed like canola, lupins, freesias, which look and smell great, gladioli, things like that can get confused with wildflowers because they're pretty flowers. So people assume because they're pretty flowers, they they must be native also because they're just growing wild. Like mm. they must be native, but that's not the case. They've naturalized. So they've been brought here from other countries and they're they're very, very happy growing here too happy and we can't control them. Yeah, right. So we've got these huge long spans of time that we're talking about in terms of evolution and ecosystem balance, you know, creating balance and, you know, creating thriving ecosystems. And that takes a long time to, to sort of, for that to happen in nature. So I guess a lot of the wildflowers that we might consider wildflowers may even actually be uh, an introduced species at one point, but it's become naturalized and over thousands, millions of years, it has become a wildflower in that region? Well, yeah, that's quite a, a deep question, Dan. I haven't thought about it in, in that much depth, but yeah, I'm, I'm not entirely sure, to be honest. The, the plants have been here a long, long time, and, and because WA is, is separated from the eastern states, like geographically, and by desert, like, you know, mm. the Nullarbor, and also because I think it's quite it's been quite geologically stable, they've had a long time to evolve, and the conditions are really sort of poor soils and 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 can be quite dry and 
and very harsh growing conditions. So that that pushes the plants to evolve and create different ways of reproduction, which is the flowers that we see. So because it's such a tough, tough gig out there, they have to really niche down and and really um, find creative ways to reproduce. And that leads to many, many different species and, and different beautiful flowers and interesting flowers. So I hope I've answered that okay, <laughs> but that's my understanding. As far as when things got introduced, I, I really don't know. That's quite interesting. We have to get someone, maybe an academic on to answer that. Yeah, that that is an interesting topic. And it's interesting what you said as well about the fact that you're geographically isolated. So it's not like seeds are being carried readily across the Nullarbor. Something I found interesting learning about recently was that they actually have a kangaroo grass that's very similar to our kangaroo grass, if not almost identical, like just basically different subspecies of the kangaroo grass in South Africa. And that's been stabilized over a very long time, I believe. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting. And I'm sure there's a, quite a few botanical links with plants we have and, and plants in other countries as well. Mm. So would you consider a grass a, a wildflower? Because technically they are flowering plants, but they don't have showy petals. It's not something that most people would go out and look at. As significant right. as they might be ecologically and and to the Indigenous people and all that, how they've been important to them, not something that the average person would go out looking for, I wouldn't have thought. They're interesting in their own right and fun to grow when you can get like plants of grasses and stuff, but not something you'd go out and look at or photograph unless you're an absolute botanical nut sort of thing. That's interesting because Western Australia has a pretty thriving, well, I guess thriving is probably the wrong word in a post-COVID world, but a lot of people do travel to Western Australia to look at the wildflowers. And coming up to spring, I think it's a fantastic time for anybody who's living in Australia, like me, who would love to go traveling overseas. Once we're allowed to travel interstate, it's kind of a bit of an easier option to go and see something interesting is to travel over to Western Australia and check out your wildflowers. Oh, definitely. We should have a much, much more booming wildflower tourism than we do. We've got such like world-class flowers that are and a lot of them are found nowhere else on the world in the world, so they should be embraced a lot more than they are, and they should be advertised. And I mean, that's where um, if you're out and about and you can take photos of flowers you see and and use like easy to ID textbooks like Eddie Wayon's books, which identify flowers by colours. And then when you start their flower colours, sorry. And then when you can start to get some IDs, share them on Instagram or on platforms like that to get them out to the rest of the world so they can appreciate them and, and identify them correctly and then they can come and have a look at them when 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 the borders are open again mm, absolutely and i definitely do encourage people to share things on social media because yeah it's good to spread the word around about this sort of stuff mm, definitely ben where can we go looking for wildflowers in western australia okay so we get off the plane in perth you know we get our hire car now what yeah, so if we're strictly talking wildflowers and not cultivated native plants in gardens, you can see them anywhere. There's remnant bushland and coastal areas. There's a lot of pretty flowering plants along the coast, like you've got acacia, lazia carpa, june moses, plants like that. Yeah, some 
beautiful plants, some different scavolas with the blue flowers. So you've got yellow flowers from the acacia, blue flowers from like scavola crassifolia or plants like that. Yeah, you can go onto the hills and see a lot of beautiful plants up there. Yeah, go into the forest, wherever really. Yeah, WA has a lot of places to check out wildflowers. Hmm. And obviously you're going to be finding different species within different plant communities and within different microclimates. Yeah, and sometimes what can be confusing is a plant like, say, Calathamnus quadrifidus, the one-sided bottle brush, there could be, because it grows over quite a wide range, you could have like 20 different variants of the same thing. So Mm. you also have that. It's still the same genus and species, but it can grow and appear different. So you also have that to contend with as Mm. well. There's natural variation within the actual species. Yeah, absolutely. And that is confusing, especially... If you are just jumping into this, not knowing what you're looking at, you would think sometimes that they're two different species or, yeah, like they can look a lot of same and then sometimes they can look very different. You know, a subspecies or a variation of a species is just sort of just before they start branching off far enough apart that we can call them a different species. Yeah, yeah. And that's a that's obviously taxonomy is a very, very detailed science and I've sat into sat in many lectures on, on just <laughs> one type of plant and the detail that the taxonomists go into with just one species and all the and, and trying to work out if they've found another species or not. It can get very, very detailed and, and just little subtleties can be the difference between something that's already been found or a completely new species. So yeah, it can get quite detailed and complex sounds like a whole nother episode oh, it definitely is <laughs> <laughs> if you want to sit through the minute details of say red beak spider orchids or something like that i think that was one that i listened to <laughs> <laughs> for at least an hour so i guess a good place to start would probably be episode 13 of this podcast called plant identifying with scientific names with Stuart williams because we kind of go through some of the basics like how to use scientific names, the order of classification, you know, family, genus, species, and then also above family. It's a really interesting topic. And if you are interested in getting into taxonomy, it's probably a good place to start if you've never really thought about this sort of stuff before. Yeah, it gets a lot more technical though than Mm. what Stuart covers. He covers, it's quite a good introduction, but I think take what he says because there's a lot of good introductory info there but also what thomas j effel talks about with learning the families and the characteristics of those families because then you can identify related plants by their common features and characteristics and then oh you can get into so much more detail going to the herbarium looking at things under microscope and oh yes quite technical Mm. and we're talking about tiny little differences like the easy ones are, does it have hair or not? Okay, so it's this species or that. And then, you know, once it starts getting really complicated, I'm out because... <laughs> oh, mate. I, I did like grass. We had to do keying out different grasses in ag science back in the day. And, and yeah, most of us were pretty ordinary at that. It was not easy. <laughs> so how can we appreciate and conserve Western Australian wildflowers? As I mentioned, taking photos, it's not, it's not just taking photos. You want to really properly identify the plant as well because otherwise 
just a, a pretty photo can be good, but not as meaningful as if it's got a correct ID. Mm-hmm. And then people can look it up if it's, they can find out more about it if it's been ID'd correctly. And, and then they might be able to grow it at home. Certain Australian plants, I think you can now grow some of them overseas even. So, yeah, identifying it's really important and then sharing it on social media. If you have like a tourism business or something, uh, maybe encourage, and there's pretty wildflowers around your area, encourage people to, to come down when there's, when wildflower season is on and, and see the pretty flowers that are around, say, your hotel or campground mm-hmm. or whatever it is. And that's spring, right? Yeah, spring, but you can, if you travel around, you can sort of see things for a lot more than just springtime. So the Aboriginal calendar sort of in Perth, they have six seasons, right? So technically spring is kind of a misnomer in a way. Yeah, they do. They do. So I can't remember what all the seasons are called, but yeah, there's there's six different seasons. I know that much. What do you do if you see someone doing the wrong thing with wildflowers, like plucking them or doing something like that? I think you can you can report it, but it's probably better to just make them aware that, you know, if you pick them, they, they might not be there next year for people to enjoy and years after that. So I think more just making people aware. Hmm, I think so. If councils or developers are clearing vegetation and they haven't got the right compliance and reports done and stuff like that, the government's starting to take that really seriously. So definitely inform the minister or the EPA or something like that. Yeah, so, yeah, because once it's gone, it's gone, so... Absolutely. And also, plants in cultivation are great, but those plants aren't being selected for by the same pressures that truly wildflowers are being selected for, right? Yeah, yeah. So we're trying to take care of them and, yeah. Yeah, and the interesting thing is some plants aren't garden-friendly and do much better in the wild. And some plants are very hard to cultivate in a nursery situation or too much water they don't like different things like that they might not have the the fungi in the soil and those sort of things in the garden so they just don't succeed so we really need the the bushland plants because you can't grow everything in a garden unfortunately Mm. unless maybe we look at tissue culture and grafting and all those things but they're very expensive and take a lot of time Mm. so you can kind of go around just in the so-called outback and just look for wildflowers. But what about when it comes to parks and gardens and cultivated wildflowers? Where can people go in Western Australia to find them? Well, obviously, Kings Park has a huge range of WA wildflowers. Even in Victoria, Dan, Cranbourne Gardens has a whole section dedicated to WA wildflowers. So they're being used all over the country. and. I believe in different parts of the world now. So, yeah, we provided you can understand their growing conditions and identify them and the nurseries can supply them, then, yeah, you can grow a lot of WA plants all over the world or all over Australia. And sometimes they do really, really well in Victoria or South Australia or somewhere like that, even better than they would maybe in Perth because they came from down Albany or Esperance Way. Mm. Yeah, there's a beautiful, my favourite eucalyptus, well, that's hard to say, 
One of my favorite eucalypts, and I was talking to you about it today, is eucalyptusesia. And yeah, what a beautiful plant. The flowers on them, the leaves, and the different sort of textures of bark and different coloring of red and white bark that you're getting through. What a beautiful plant. And it does really well over here in Melbourne. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a, it's a awesome plant. It's a Malleuc. So it's multi, multi stemmed and it's very, very drought tolerant. And it does fantastically well in gardens. It can actually grow quite big, but you can prune it back pretty hard. It's got a nice weeping foliage. It can grow quite tall. So birds absolutely love it. That's a beautiful plant. One of my favorite. Oh, what a beautiful plant. And the weeping kind of shape of the branches as well. Just a gorgeous plant. Yeah, it's a stunner. So, Ben, let's just say, look, I'm a beginner and I want to go out and look at wildflowers, but I don't know what I'm looking at. What resources can I use to basically get my head in the game so that I have a bit more of an idea of what I'm doing when I'm looking at Western Australian wildflowers? Yeah, so as I mentioned, Eddie Wayon's written quite a few books for different regions of WA, which use flower color as a way to identify it. So you look at the color and then you look in his book and see which ones are yellow. And then you can hopefully identify plants based on their color. That's pretty cool. It is. It's a smart way of doing it. There's some little pocket books like WA uh, Wildflowers of the Southwest or something like that. They're quite good. If you're a bit more tech savvy, Florabase is great. But the thing with Florabase is it goes a lot on scientific names and regions and stuff like that. So for someone like me, Florabase is a great way to to look for wildflowers. But if you're starting out, I guess, maybe go to some of the Wildflower Society meetings. You'll learn some things there. Probably even go out with them on their walks. That's a great way because you've got really experienced guides to, to ask questions and you'll learn your local plants. And then once you get your head around 20, 30, 40, 50 of them, start to be able to ID plants of the same genus. And then using those books, you'll be able to work out what species there are as well because you'll be pretty good on the genus. It takes a lot, lot longer to be able to get genus and species, particularly when you're going outside of the areas you're familiar with. That gets a lot harder because there might be some genus that you've never heard of or never seen before. So, yeah, it's just about starting small and building up the basics and like Thomas J. Effel says, learn the characteristics of the families because it's a lot easier to remember those things than it is to try and remember 13,000 different plants. You know, there's maybe remember eight of the most common families first and what their characteristics are. So you can identify, say, a pea flower, an acacia, an orchid, you know, all those sort of things. Yes. And then work your way up from there. Mm-hmm. So how about asters? I think you guys have a one or two wildflowers in the aster family, We right? have heaps more than or that. More than one or two. Heaps and heaps <laughs> and heaps. Yeah, yeah. So like the Swan River Daisy, that's one. The Rotnest Island Daisy, that's really nice. And yeah, many different annual asteraceae. Yeah, no, they're beautiful. There was even one I saw, we went on a, a trip to York. It was called, I think it was Illyria rudis, might have been. But yeah, that was a stunner growing on like on rock, on a rocky outcrop in York on a farm. And I just wish you could have that sort of plant in the garden. 
because it was such a, it was kind of like, you know, the Velt Daisy, do you, do you have that? That weedy thing from South Africa? It was kind of like a native version of that. And I, I tried to chase down if anyone grew it in the nursery around here, but I couldn't find it anywhere. Felt. Oh, yeah. No, we cultivate that here. Oh, it's, a, it's an absolute weed. <laughs> so this plant was quite similar to that, but a WA version, and it was growing on like rock. And I thought, <laughs> why is that not you know a common garden plant? But when I went to find it, I just couldn't find it because there's just not enough people out there that, that can... Uh, that are allowed to collect it because you need a scientific license to collect and I think a different license if you're doing it commercially and then you've got to have the um, then you've got to grow them on and then yeah they've got to like the nursery conditions and you've got to be able to sell viable plants in pots yeah. at tube stock or 140s or whatever so yeah there's so many possible plants and obviously people like George Lolfitz were, uh, was a pioneer in getting different WA wildflowers into gardens. He was absolutely pivotal. Yeah. And and a good reason why we have all the varieties we do today. Not only him, but he was he he's the main one that comes to mind. But I guess as we kind of said before, you know, like it's really good to have all these seeds and all these plants that we can go and throw back out there in the wild. But the best plants are going to be the ones that are adapting to the environment so you know they're not being selected for as you said you know pressures on overwatering or pressures that are known to be in you know a nursery setting rather than if they're truly wildflowers the pressures that they're going to be selected for are more things like the correct rhizobacteria or rhizomycelium in the in the soil Mycorrhizi and stuff like that, that. mycorrhizae yeah. that's the word i'm looking for yeah there would be different associations going on there that can be really pivotal pivotal to certain plant relationships and and they need to grow in amongst plant communities the other thing that comes to mind is that a seed that germinates in the wild well how many seeds and, and grows into a mature plant i mean how many seeds will reach the ground and and that might be one out of a hundred one out of a thousand so you're picking like superior genes as well yes Whereas in cultivation, we're trying to get all of the seeds to sprout. Well, as high a germination rate as possible. So, yeah, the plants that grow in the wild are quite genetically, can be genetically superior and can grow in really, really tough conditions, in really shallow soil and really harsh conditions. Mm. And not only that, but sometimes when we cultivate them, they can even look different. The Royal Hagia. Yeah, well, I actually have not had the chance to go and see it in the wild, but a customer of mine had it in the in, in her garden and it had quite a few honey eaters' nests in it and it lived to like 10 years and then one day it died, which was really sad. But yeah, the thing with growing a spectacular plant like that, we talked about WA plants for their flowers but they're also there's many wa plants that have stunning foliage and particularly the royal hakea and, and down south i think around the, i think it's a fitzgerald national park area down around esperance because it, i think because it's colder down there it gets a really beautiful red hue to it and yeah you have to look it up to really appreciate it it's absolutely unique but in perth gardens it doesn't get that 
red hue because it's warmer and conditions are different. So, yeah, there's some beautiful plants. And unless you have, you can emulate the conditions, the climatic conditions, you won't get the same performance as you'll see in the wild. But yeah, the Royal Hake is a beautiful plant. grows quite big, stunning leaves. So there's quite a few beautiful foliage plants too, and that's that's an absolute star. Absolutely. So are Western Australian wildflowers edible? Yeah, yeah, of course. All of uh, there's them. lots of different edible plants. Edible and tasty can be two different things, but... <laughs> If you're starving in the outback and you know what to eat, they do have nutrition and keep, can keep you going. Yeah, so you can eat like the gums of like like the sap and the of different plants, I believe, like ukes and stuff like that. Even some acacia gums, I think they can be chewed on. I'm not an expert in this area. I've read a few books and I do find it interesting. But I'd like would it'd be awesome if we could have say uh, an indigenous person on again. Yeah, what, what was the it was Urubai. Adam Urubai, yeah, he from was great. Urubai. If we could get more of that information, I'd love to learn more. But yeah, from what I've read, yeah, there's a lot of like certain acacia seeds are edible and I think can be crushed up and made into flour. And yeah, so a lot of like wetland plants, their stems are edible, like sedges and rushes and stuff like that. What else? A lot of, you've got like native yams and stuff and there's even... Uh, one that grows in the Perth Hills. I can't remember what it's called, but yeah, that that's a native yam. And then quite a lot of, you know, the uh, Pacridaceae, the heaths and stuff, those, they have edible berries. Yeah. So, and we have to put a disclaimer out there, Dan, you have to identify <laughs> these and you're actually not allowed to just go and eat things from the bush. Yeah. Yeah. Pig face, that's got edible fruits. But again, tasty versus edible. Yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I definitely uh, get. Yeah, you can give it a try. <laughs> when I'm in gardens and I have my mate helping me as a joke, I, I, I tell him to try different uh, WA edible <laughs> plants and see what he thinks. It's just a bit, bit of a laugh. But yeah, things like samphire actually that tastes quite nice. That's a salt bush, and they use that in like high end cooking. That's quite nice actually. I'm trying to think. Yeah, there's so many plants that are edible. I mean, as Thomas J. Ethel says. You know, you, you soon kind of, once you learn about the families and and you know what to eat, it's more about knowing what not to eat because there's some dangerous ones. But if you know to avoid them, most things might just taste bad. They're not going to hurt you. But as a dis- the disclaimer there is we don't encourage anyone to try because it does take a lot of knowledge and advice to have the confidence to identify them properly because there are plants out there that will hurt you. Absolutely. So we have another episode coming up soon with Joey from Crime Pays But Botany Doesn't. And he's been to West <laughs> It's a great name for a YouTube channel, but he's if you know him, you know him, and you'll be excited that he's coming on the show if you know who he is. But he he's been to Western Australia. He's a Yankee, but he's been to Western Australia and he's checked out the wildflowers there. And I do recommend people go and check out his YouTube series on native Australian plants. But he was sort of talking about you know, pea flowers as being one of the most deadly sort of families around in Western Australia. You know, we think, oh, yeah, peas are edible, great. But no, there's some really dangerous pea yeah, family there yeah, are. plants. Mm. I, 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 one of the best lecture, lectures I've sat in on was Bob Cooper, the survival expert. 
and he talked about peas with, say, opposite leaves. Quite often they're quite dangerous, can be, huh. and and things like gastrolobiums and stuff like that. Well, that that plant has the, the chemical fluoroacetate, which is used in 1080 baits. And yes, that's what he was saying. they kill feral animals because the native animals have evolved with it. But yeah, that talk with Bob was amazing. I'd love to get Bob on the podcast. He is a star. We had our biggest turnout ever. It was standing room only at the uh, <laughs> at the Coburn Wetland Center in in Bibra Lake. He was amazing. Pre COVID. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> four or five years ago. <laughs> no, it was it was a while ago, but yeah, he talked about he was really good because Bob isn't a botanist, but Bob knows what he's talking about and he's got so much experience in outback survival and he just simplifies it. So, you know, he never gets poisoned, but he doesn't know every plant, but he knows what to look for, what poisonous plants look for, look like, sorry. Yeah, so that was such a cool episode. But yeah, a lot of peas can be can be poisonous, yeah. So I guess with these edible plants, we call them wildflowers. But we may not be eating the actual flower of the wildflower. We can call the wildflower the plant itself, or you know, or we can talk about the flower being the wildflower. Yeah, most of the time you won't be eating the flower. There probably are edible flowers out there. I don't know many that are, but a lot of the time you're eating the stems, the leaves, or the fruits usually. So we've talked a little bit about growing and conserving wildflowers in the garden. Can you expand on that a little bit more for me? Yeah, well, surprisingly, there's some wildflowers that are quite endangered or have quite a restricted range in the wild, but absolutely thrive in a garden environment. I believe plants like, well, eucalyptus cesia that you were talking about, that is widespread in WA gardens and over east. And I think you'd nearly find more, I could be wrong here, but Hmm. more in gardens than in the bush. And plants like Aromophila nivea, the sandpaper wattle, Acacia denticulata, the red flowering gum, that only comes from a small range down around Albany. But that's there'd be more of that in gardens than in the wild. So certain plants just take to, to gardens like a duck to water. And we can actually have them have huge populations of them in, in gardens, more than it's even in the wild potentially in some cases. So, yeah, that's a great way to conserve certain plants. Unfortunately, it doesn't work for all. Not that it won't in the future, but it requires more work. Say plants like the Quilup Bell, Palmelia fissoides, I think it's down the Fitzgerald National Park way. When that's grafted onto, onto Palmelia pharyngenia rootstock, it becomes a great garden plant. And I think I've sent you photos of it, and I've had it in my garden since George Lolfitz finished up his nursery two or three years ago, and that just has beautiful flowers year on year because it's been grafted onto a superior rootstock. A lot of verticordias, the purists won't probably like this, but you can actually graft a little, quite a few of them onto gelatin wax rootstocks. So there's going to have to be a lot of grafting and tissue culture and things like that, or just breaking the dormancy of certain plants like Kwandongs, which mm-hmm. Richard McDowell is a specialist in, you know, breaking seed dormancy and stuff like that will be vital to having these plants in our gardens and, and, and trying to find ways to get them to survive in garden conditions. So what is seed dormancy? 
So the seed coat sometimes has physical or chemical inhibitors that stops the plant germinating, so it won't just germinate if conditions aren't just right. So peas have like a hard seed coat, and if you boil or scratch the seed coat, it can induce dormancy. Some plants stimulated by fire like banksias or kangaroo paws. So with kangaroo paws, if you use smoke water that Kingsley Dixon first brought onto the market, Professor Kingsley Dixon, um, you get a much higher germination rate and that can and that never hurts any native seeds. So if you've got different seeds, it's worth buying smoke water and, and using that on your seeds because quite often you might find you get a better germination. Certain plants obviously need hot fire like banksia seeds, so you can actually put them in your oven in some cases to get them to germinate better or on fire. Yeah, it's really interesting. Mm. So, yeah, there's a lot of things that we can do to get more plants in gardens, but it's going to take a lot of effort and trial and error and those sort of things and and get nurseries to grow them. Because mm. if it's not viable for the nursery, unfortunately, you're not going to be able to buy them if they can't sell them and make a living doing it. Yeah, absolutely. So, look, Ben, we've been quite positive so far but unfortunately we're going to have to take a bit of a negative turn here what are some of the threats to western australian wildflowers obviously the changing climate each year for the last 30 years the the rainfall is steadily declining and we're getting hotter and drier summers around the perth metro we're getting a lowering of the water table so that can lead to tree deaths and stuff like that dieback disease is obviously present throughout parts of WA and even in gardens. That's lethal for quite a few native plants like Jarrah, Eucalyptus marginata, and a lot of the Banksias. We don't have it here yet, but myrtle rust would be an absolute shocker to, if it arrived over here. That's over east. And expanding roads and new roads, going through wetlands or clearing existing roadside vegetation because that contains some of the last remaining rare plants along the sides of roads because mm-hmm. obviously the farms have already cleared a lot of their vegetation so some of what's left is only what's left along the sides of the roads and developing and clearing urban sprawl so a lot of bushland areas are getting knocked over for houses and industrial and all those sort of things so yeah we really need to conserve what we've got and build things smarter because we can't keep going on pretending that we don't know now that we do know the effects that we can have on this planet that we live on and this beautiful country. Yeah, And those plants provide ecological services like cleaning the air, cleaning the water, you know, things like uh, the wetland plants, they're like a biofilter. So they make the water cleaner when when the water passes through the the roots of the plants and Mm. they provide a lot of hidden services. Yeah, absolutely. And within these communities, it's not like you can just take one plant out and be like, oh, well, we'll just replace it with something else. Like, let's just let the dandelions take over from your native asters. Because that's not really how an ecosystem works. Everything depends on each other in with these nuanced relationships. And those newer plants, it's unbalanced and they just try and dominate because they're obviously, a lot of them are primary colonizers. So uh, I think the last episode, which I found really interesting, mentioned that they thrive on disturbance. So if you've got an intact bushland, there's not very much disturbance. And also they'll put most pressure on the edges of a bushland. So the, the, the larger the bushland, 
you can have next to no weeds even in some of the larger remnant bushlands in perth it's it's quite amazing when you get to the very middle it might be hard to find a weed yeah in some in some of them which is really cool when you see that well this is what permaculturists and no dig farmers have been trying to tell us for quite some time now yeah 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 because that that's what they're saying they're saying if when we stop digging and tilling the soil we're getting less weeds yeah yeah makes sense yeah so ben is there anything else you'd like the listeners to know about just appreciate the the plants around and and get to know them get 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 an id put up pretty photos if there's flowers you like or like trees you like or whatever you know yeah because australia has beautiful beautiful plants and yeah we need to look after them thanks for another great episode mate cheers for coming on no worries at all dan cheers spring is an awesome time to check out wildflowers in western australia as we all know western australia isn't necessarily an easy place to get into right now But if you're already residing there, there's no reason you have to miss out on seeing some beautiful endemic flowering plants. If you're elsewhere in Australia or the rest of the world, you can certainly follow the Wildflower Society on Facebook and begin planning a visit for next year. Make sure you listen to episodes in our back catalogue, including several that Ben and I have recorded together on the topics of native landscape gardening, maintenance gardening and weeds.